We are in Hebrews chapter 7, I believe. And before we get into Hebrews 7, I want to read just one more time back in Genesis, the 14th chapter. Genesis 14th chapter where we read of Melchizedek. And really the only place we read of Melchizedek in the Old Testament is Genesis the 14th chapter beginning 18 and 20. And then again in Psalm 110. But in, in Genesis 14... Uh, verse 18 or so, remember uh, Abraham's coming back now after doing battle with the kings. And in verse 18, the Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abr Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. That's pretty much all we read about in the Old Testament concerning Melchizedek, with the exception of Psalm uh, 110. And in Psalm 110, verse 14, it's really a, a, a prophecy concerning Christ and Christ's priesthood. In Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's, if I'm correct, that's all we read of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Now we get to Hebrews 7, and I don't think we read about Melchizedek anywhere in the New Testament either, other than in the book of Hebrews. So it's a very unique character. Not really a whole lot known about him. Um, Melchizedek, some say it's not even a name as much as it is a title, perhaps. But even though there's not a lot known about him, or exactly who he may have been even, uh, from what we read in Genesis 14, and then when we tie that in to Hebrews 7, particularly as we look at Hebrews 7, there are some important characteristics of, of uh, Melchizedek that we want to look at. And he's looking at that and tying that in with the priesthood of Christ to show that uh, they're superior to the Levitical priesthood but even more than that, the priesthood of Christ is superior to that of Melchizedek. And we mentioned before what great emphasis the Jews would put on the high priest. Remember, they looked at him as a mediator between them and God in so many ways. And they placed great emphasis on the high priest. And this is now his point in Hebrews 7. As we look at the word better throughout the book, you have a better high priest, among other things. But in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, probably Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. So number one there is you notice that it was Melchizedek who blessed uh, Abraham. But there's something already significant in verse 1 when it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, and priest of the Most High God. Uh, you see, who else would serve as priest and king simultaneously? Uh, no one but Christ himself is very unique. And in verse 1 of chapter 7, he says, King of Salem. Well, he's already introduced Christ as king in, earlier in the book, has he not? Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, and in uh, uh, 
he says, he tells us in Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, But under the sun, he said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. So he's bringing out the point here in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8 that Christ, uh, well, I started to say Christ is going to serve as king. Well, that's true. He's actually serving as king now. His kingdom has already been established, and so he's serving as king now. But we're also going to see that he's serving as high priest. And in fact, in Zechariah 6, verses 12 and 13, you find out that Christ, speaking of Christ, he would be a priest upon his throne. So he's a priest and a king simultaneously. Now that's important. Um, he's not going to be a king, though, uh, on earth. And he's not a priest uh, as one would be under the old law. And we're going to see that as we go through chapter 7 here. But Melchizedek, all right, so he's king of Salem. Uh, but he's also priest of the Most High God. So he's king and priest simultaneously just as Christ was. And he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and he blessed him. The verse 2, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. First being by the interpretation of king of righteousness and after that also king of Salem which is king of peace. So what's significant in verse 2 here is that Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek probably some would say he's basically giving a tenth of his spoils from war there from his battles but in verse 2 it's important that he says first being by interpretation king of righteousness well, again you could go to uh, 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 Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 the scepter of righteousness shall be the scepter of thy kingdom and then after that also in verse 2 after that also king of Salem which is king of peace now, Christ is the king of peace, is he not? That's interesting. Remember at one point he said, I didn't come to bring peace into the world, but a sword. And sometimes even physical families are going to be divided because not, not really divided by Christ, but you might say divided because of Christ, simply that some will follow him, some will not, and they're going to be divided. So he said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Christ didn't really come to bring peace between men. I mean, that would be... Nice if that if that were to exist. Uh, the Bible tells us in Romans 12, as much as is possible within us, live at peaceably with all men. So that's an admirable goal. But on the other hand, Christ really came to bring peace between man and God. That was his purpose for coming. Before Christ sacrifices himself on the cross, he gives himself as a sacrifice there voluntarily now. Before he does that, you understand there's a real conflict between man and God. There's a problem here because of the sin. And that's separating man from God. And so Christ comes to bring peace between God and men. Remember in Isaiah 9 and verses 6, what does Isaiah say about the coming of Christ? Unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. He said, the weight of the government then shall be upon his shoulder. Reference to his time as king. And he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. So Christ now is significant in verse 2 uh, that he's referring to Melchizedek here, King of Peace, because Christ is also King of Peace. He came to bring peace between man and God. Now verse 3, it's an interesting thing we find in verse 3, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. All right, now, he tells us in verse 3, without father and without mother, 
without descent, if the King James says descent, I think most all the other translations are going to say without genealogy. There may be something else, but I think most all the others, the ESV, probably the New King James, I think American Standard, uh, the New American Standard, they're going to say without genealogy. Now, when it says without father and without mother, I don't believe he's saying he did not, he literally did not have a father or he did not have a mother. I think what it's talking about here, and really you have to, I would tie all three of these phrases in together. Without father, without mother, without descent. Or without father, without mother, without genealogy. And what do you do when you study genealogy? You're basically trans, uh, studying the, uh, the um, uh, ancestry. I couldn't think of the word. You're studying the ancestry. See where they came from. See who your ancestors were. And I think his point here, and this would often be the case with Jewish writing, they would refer to somebody as being without mother or without father, without genealogy, meaning there's no record of their ancestry. And that's significant because the, the priest under the old law, the priest under the law of Moses, would basically come to be a priest in line with their ancestry, would they not? Um, or descent. And that they would become priest in that way. You might, you might say they'd fall in line as far as their ancestry. It's not so in Melchizedek. Well, it's not so with Christ either. But I think, again, what he's, I think the point of this, without father, without mother, without descent, or without uh, genealogy, keep reading, it says, have neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, he abides a priest continually. I think the point of verse 3 here, there's no record of his ancestry, there's no record of his father and mother, there's no record of his beginning of days, there's no record of his end of life here. I don't think it means he's an eternal being that was always existed, you see. I'm not about to give this person the characteristics of God. He's not still alive. I wouldn't take the position that here's somebody today, several thousands of years old, upon the face of the earth. Again, I think it's simply saying in verse 3, there's no record of his birth, of his ancestry, of his death. Uh, you know, he's, he's considered still alive. Not that he is. But it's not recorded. Not really a parallel thought, but maybe pretty close to it to, to help us understand uh, the literature of the day. Remember, you go to Jeremiah, I think it's Jeremiah 22:30, and he's talking about Jeconiah there. And he tells us in Jeremiah 22:30 that uh, he says, Consider this man childless. And he goes on to say that none of his heir would sit upon a throne and reign in Jerusalem. But he says, consider him childless. It's like, consider him as if he had no, had, had no children. And none of his uh, descendants or none of his heirs are going to sit on a throne and reign in Jerusalem. But yet we know he had children, did he not? In fact, that's very important because we find out in Matthew, the first chapter of Matthew, we talk about the lineage of Christ. We find Christ was a descendant of Jeconiah. So obviously he had children, and that's also important because if you tie Jeremiah 22.30 in with Matthew 1, you find out Christ is not going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem. The whole idea that premillennialists uh, will teach is you know, someday when after all of this the tribulation, the rapture and tribulation, and, and Christ is going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem, and he's going to reign for a thousand years, and it's just not taught in the Bible. Uh, but notice back in Hebrews one or Hebrews seven, I'm sorry, back in Hebrews seven verse three, 
He's made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, verse 4, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. See, this man is superior, this Melchizedek and his priesthood, he's superior to Abraham. And so he said, even Abraham, even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Don't overlook how important this is. Remember at one point, do you not hear the Jews saying to Christ, uh, we've never been under bondage to any man. Well, we're the children of Abraham. And they place such great emphasis on being the children of Abraham. And he's telling them, now look, Abraham, the great patriarch Abraham, gave tithes to Melchizedek. And we're going to see the significance of that in just a few verses here. But notice in verse 5, And verily they that are of the sons of Levi who receive the office of the priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent, now verse 6, or he whose genealogy is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. Again, his ancestry, the ideal of not being recorded, and then in verse 7, without all contradiction or without all dispute, the less is blessed of the better. You might say the inferior is blessed of the superior. And again, he's already told us in the first part of the chapter now how Melchizedek blessed Abraham, did he not? And then he's telling us here the less is, is blessed of the better. That is, the superior would be the one to bless the inferior. And here are men that die receive tithes, but there he received them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. Again, there's simply no record of his death. Uh, but the priest under the old law would serve for a while, but they would serve until they're dead, obviously until they're dead. Verse 9, And as I may so say, Levi also who received tithes paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, um, pay protection now to verse 11, 12, 13, 14, but he tells us in 11, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? If perfection were made possible by the Levitical priesthood, what need would there have been then for another priest to come after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron, if the Old Testament and the priesthood under the Old Testament can make man perfect, what need would there be for another? I don't know how much of a little side trip I want to take in this when you talk about the old law uh, and were people forgiven under the old law. And I guess you could say they were forgiven, but only then you have to, I think, to really understand that, they were forgiven only in the prospect of the coming of Christ. We're going to see in Hebrews 9.15 that when Christ died, he died for those who lived under the old law as well as the new. Anybody who's ever been forgiven was forgiven because of the blood of Christ. Again, they were forgiven under the old law, but only in the prospect of the coming of Christ. You might... Maybe not the best way to put it. I kind of think under the old law they were forgiven in promise, but when Christ shed his blood they were forgiven in reality or actuality. That might not be the best way to put it. But, well, if you look at the revelation, um, I didn't mean to 
interrupt you. No, that's fine. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 says Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. From the foundation of the world. The very foundation of the world. The fact that it's going uh, to happen, that God had said it because God cannot lie, made it so. It was like a, a, a sure thing, I guess. Uh, it was determined before the foundation of the world. You could look at Ephesians 3 if you wanted to, about verse 9, 10, 11. How this was always part of the eternal purpose of God. It was always in the mind of God. Now that's important too, isn't it? Because Christ's death was not an afterthought. It was not just a response to something that happened on earth. It was not just because, well, he came to be king and the Jews rejected him as king. And so now we're going to have him build the, uh, the church instead, you know, and the kingdom is to come later. And they have the postponement theory and all this. Uh, it, it, God knew what was going to happen before Christ even came into the world. Uh, you'll never catch God off guard, you know. You'll never catch God by surprise. Uh, but it was all part of the plan from all of eternity, was it not? And so, uh, now also sometimes people want to talk about uh, a weakness of the old law or a shortcoming of the old law. Uh I want to, I have to be very careful when you talk about the weakness of the law or the shortcoming of the law because um, any shortcoming it may have had or any weakness it may have had was, uh, it may not be the best way to say this again, but basically it was part of the design of the law. I mean, it's not that God put the law of Moses into place and then later on found out, well, this isn't working very well. We need to change it, see. It, it was, uh, it was, uh, remember what you read in about the old law in so many ways was for foreshadowing of the gospel and a foreshadowing, of, a foreshadowing of Christ. So he tells us in verse 12 now of Hebrews 7, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity to change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. Now notice verse 14, For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah. See, Christ is from the tribe of Judah. It is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. What all did Moses say about uh, the priesthood and the priest coming from the tribe of Judah? What all did Moses have to say about that? Well, it tells us right here in the verse. He didn't say anything. He had nothing to say about that. Now, that's important as well. Sometimes people will use this verse, probably rightfully so, the whole idea that you know, silence doesn't give permission. Silence doesn't provide authority. I mean, where did he say that uh, the priest could not come from the tribe of Judah? I don't know that he said that anywhere, did he? But on the other hand, he didn't have to. Remember, the priests were to come from the tribe of Levi. And so uh, he's, the, his, that's his point in verse 14. Our Lord sprang out of the tribe of Judah, of which the tribe of Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifies, there are the priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now if you're writing notes or taking notes or putting notes in your Bible or something, in verse 17 if you wanted to, I believe that's where you could put Psalm 110 and verse 4. As Psalm 110 and verse 4 is a prophecy of the priesthood of Christ. And that's what his reference is to here 
in verse 17, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. Uh, for the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. Uh, again, probably every time in the New Testament you read the word perfect, I don't know that there's any exceptions to this. I don't believe Hebrews 7.19 is an exception to it. When he says made it perfect, I still think it's perfect oftentimes. It doesn't necessarily mean flawless or without any kind of flaw or, or defect. Uh, most often it's the idea of reaching its entire goal, uh, a desired goal. I'm sorry, reaching its desired goal or reaching the desired end or reaching its intended purpose like that. See, Now, what is the desired goal? But to be sinless, right? Well, that not that really what God wants for man? But man to be sinless, and that takes place. So how? Not through the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices. That was simply foreshadowing the sacrifice of Christ. But we today are made perfect, meaning we reach our desired goal of being sinless. But that takes place by the blood of Christ takes place through the gospel. See, the gospel did what the law of Moses couldn't do. But again, I believe that's part of design, not not some kind of... In other words, I'm putting it real simple. God didn't make a mistake with the law of Moses. He didn't make a mistake. He didn't, didn't, didn't do it and say, well, this isn't working out too well. We need a change. It's part of God's design as he's bringing... Um, man into a recognition of sin. Remember we've said before, when you study Old Testament history, you need to remember you're studying much more than Old Testament history. You're studying really there the providence of God and how his, he's bringing his plan of salvation into existence and making it a reality here. The law was perfectly designed to, to accomplish the purpose in which it was intended to accomplish. Exactly. It was perfectly designed to carry or to to carry out the purpose for which it was intended. I, is that basically the way you said it? I don't want to change it. Exactly but it, it carried out the purpose for which it was intended. Absolutely. And it, it did that perfectly. That's right. You know, um, it was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And that was its purpose. Its purpose was never to be forever or to remain in place forever. It was to lead us to the Savior, to prepare a nation of people, a country a world for the coming of the Savior in due time. And that's what Paul told the church of Galatia. You know, he told them, in the due of the time, God said for the Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were born under the law. And so the law was perfect, and it, it accomplished exactly what God intended it to accomplish. It prepared us for the coming of the Savior. It prepared us for the coming of the Savior. And that's why in the Old Testament you're studying the providence of God and in the fullness of time, when the time was there, and God obviously knew that even before time, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son. Uh, and we've looked at that recently, you know, when Cole was talking about the different periods of Bible history even and discussed how the different kingdoms of the Old Testament all had a part even in bringing the gospel about. It's God's providence. Now, uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but the idea could... could uh, see, sometimes I've heard people say even that, you know, uh, 
you had the law of Moses in place, but people couldn't keep it. And so because people couldn't keep the old law, uh, God basically did away with the law of Moses, and now we live under the gospel. Well, number one, when you hear people say that, I've pretty much heard people teaching say that in the past. But when you hear somebody say that, your first reaction is, well, I'm glad to see you're keeping the laws in the gospel perfectly. I'm saying that with a little sarcasm. In other words, we're going to do away with the old law because they couldn't keep the old law, so now we have the gospel. Well, people aren't keeping it perfectly either, are they? So that wouldn't be reason to do away with the old law. Again, it, it carried out its intended purpose. Now, on the other hand, could people keep the old law? Sure could. Let's look for a minute at Luke. We're going to take a little side trip here in Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now look at chapter 1, verse 6 of Luke. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and, commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Now, could you keep the old law? Even today, I might, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if I, if I asked for a show of hands and just said how many of you are law-abiding citizens, I hope every one of you would raise your hand. Doesn't necessarily mean you're sinless, does it? Ever? All right, but the idea that people couldn't keep the old law, so that's why we have the gospel now, because the law of Moses, nobody could do it. They were blameless under the law in which they lived. Uh, you know, you're always going to be judged by the law under which you lived. See? And, and, th and think about that. That even should help people today when you're thinking about what, what's expected of us to do today. What is expected of us today? How's this lost person going to be saved today? You know, well, I've got to go look at the law in which I now live. I can't look at a previous law. I can't look at a previous time period and look and see what they did and say, well, that's what I'm going to do today to be saved. You've got to look under the law in which you live. Um, you know, uh, did Moses keep the, did Moses observe the Lord's Supper the first day of every week? No. It wasn't a part of that time frame, was it? Uh, now, on the other hand, uh, people say, well, I want to be saved like the thief on the cross. Well, it's the wrong time frame, see? Uh, why don't they ever want to be saved like, like Stephen was or go through that? But they want to be saved like the thief on the cross. Well, you're looking at a different time frame if you want to do that. But now, verse 19, then, the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. A better hope. All right? The Bible will tell us in a place or two we're saved by hope. Remember, hope is a strong desire coupled with a realistic expectation. Take the desire away or take the... Uh, Take the expectation away, you don't have hope. When the Bible talks about hope and being a better hope and being saved by hope, it's talking about a desire coupled with a realistic expectation. Take either one of those away, you don't have hope. In other words, hope in the Bible is not just a wishful thinking. Boy, I hope I go to heaven. I hope I do. See, we, we ought to have a strong desire, but we also fully expect it because of what Christ has done for us. See? 
we ought to be able to live with an expectation. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest, verse 20. For those priests were made without an oath, that is, now under the law. But this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110, verse 4. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered, the King James will read, as I did allowed. They were truly many priests because they were not allowed to continue by reason of death. Alright? You see what he's getting at here? They, they died, and by reason of their death now, they weren't permitted to continue as priests. They're dead. Christ died. Is he still our high priest? Although he lives too, he didn't. He 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 died only to be raised and live again. Um, we don't serve a dead God; we serve a living God. Uh, but even after his death, well, he's still serving as priest today. But this man, verse twenty-four, because he continues ever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Talking about Christ, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Is Christ interceding for you now? Or is that something he just did in the past? Well, fact is, he did it in the past. But the truth is, he's doing it now too. Look at John 17, if you wanted to, with uh, uh, well other scriptures as well. But remember, John, in John 17, we read Christ's prayer there, and he prayed for his disciples. But not only his disciples at the time, but for all those who would come later. And he's making intercession for us now. For such a high priest became us who is... You could preach a whole sermon if you wanted to on verse 26. We could, have taught, we could have stayed the whole class on verse 26. For such a high priest became us, as becoming to us fitting is what we need, basically, who is, here's Christ now, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. See, Christ is holy. Now, on the other hand, is holy, is that something that Christ can be and we can't? Holy is something that God is, Christ is, and we, to put it in simple terms, we better be, right? We are commanded to be holy as well, without which no man can see God. Separate from sinners, you're, if you're a Christian, you're not a sinner. That is, you may, I understand you may sin from time to time, but that is not your identification. People say, well, I'm no saint. If you're a Christian, you're a saint because you've been sanctified. You've been set apart. You're holy, set apart from the world. Don't identify as a sinner anymore. See, Christ has made you a new creature who needs not daily as those high priests offer up sacrifice first for his own sins. This is what the Old Testament priest would do. And then for the peoples, he had to sacrifice for his own sins first and then for the peoples. For this he did once. See, Christ did that once when he offered up himself. You see, Christ is a better sacrifice. He doesn't have to die on the cross Again and again and again and again, you see. And he, before he offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross, he didn't have to make some kind of sacrifice first for his own sin, him being sinless, of course. Verse 28, then, For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, weakness, shortness, or their shortcoming. But the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. What's the point of chapter 7? You've got a better priesthood now. Christ is better than the priest who served under the old law, better than the high priest who served under the old law, and he's even better 
than the priesthood of Melchizedek. And remember, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. I'm having trouble saying that now. To Melchizedek. So today, you and I still have a great high priest. You and I today still have a better priest than that under the old law. We serve a great high priest who, because of what he has done, provides access between us and God. Remember, the Jews would look at the high priest as a mediator between God and man. But who is our mediator today between us and God? But our high priest, Christ Jesus himself. I think we're going to stop there at verse 28. So next time we have class, next time we meet, we'll start at chapter 8 and verse 1.